Advertising per se is an industry that has to understand the times of now. And it almost kind of has to use the times of now to align itself to the production of goods. You know. Hello, I'm Olivia Cummings, and on this podcast, I'd like to introduce you to the people who inspire me in my life and work as a jeweler, designer, and founder of Cleopatra's Bling. My guest today, Enes Chehish, understands the predicament that many of us are in in the 21st century. We need a money job to pursue a creative passion. As an author, he managed to capitalize on his experience working as a brand strategist and use it to fuel his writing with biting humor and detailed observation. The sarcasm that I kind of tried to express in advertising worked for that book, but the next book is perhaps darker. Ennis's work deals with disillusionment, displacement, and the odd feeling of living in our modern world. His debut novel, Sadvertising, is published by Penguin Random House. This podcast was recorded on Wurundjeri country, and I pay my respects to all First Nations listeners. Hello. Welcome to the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm actually really excited to do this chat. Me too. So you've described Sarajevo as a place which is self-contained and not only surrounded by mountains, but also physically turned inwards. How does it feel to be based between Melbourne and Sarajevo? Well, all of, all of this is fairly recent. Um, my partner and I made a decision to move to Sarajevo. Well, we always intended to come back here. Uh, this is before the pandemic. But during the pandemic, and I think maybe it had something to do with, with the drama that we all kind of faced during lockdowns, that everybody was trying to make these kind of strange, risky decisions of how they wanted to live. And we decided to move to Sarajevo, and uh, we bought an apartment here that we didn't even see. So we just we bought it. We had a friend of ours kind of take some photos and a little video for us before we came here, but, and we bought it on Viber. Which, is, which was just the most amazing thing. Vibe is, um, it's like the WhatsApp the, of the Balkans. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> I know Vibe. I don't know why I know Vibe. Maybe from Turkey? <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we made this kind of rash decision that just turned out to be one of the best things I did in life. If you recall, back in the day, you couldn't leave Australia. You had to apply for a permission, permission to leave. I recall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So we, we submitted all of this paperwork that we, you know, that we've purchased a property overseas, that we migrated, moving all of our stuff. And the first time we were rejected. And then second time they asked us to show proof that we're leaving our residence. So we got a letter from a landlord. Uh, we booked um, a container for all of our stuff. It was quite bureaucratic, but it almost felt like we were exiling ourselves out of the pandemic. And we came here and uh, we just started our life again. So it's been it's been a year now that we've been uh, kind of based out of Sarajevo. And I guess for me, from a personal perspective, I, I've never really lived in, in, in Bosnia as an adult. I mean, I left the country uh, when I was eight uh, during the Bosnian War. So you kind of have a – you grow up with a different perception of, of the land that you're from. Um, yeah. And that perception was sort of influenced by, you know, my parents' understanding of their past, of what I knew from what you kind of grow up with in, in a diasporic environment. 
Um, yeah. And while, you know, I, I've traveled through Bosnia quite a lot uh, over the years, but uh, making it your home is very different. You know, you know what that's like. You've lived in mm. Paris for a long time. And, you know, it's, it's a city that is in a valley, but it is kind of armored inside. It makes you feel like you're living this, this beautiful shell. And I absolutely love it. It's, 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 it's thriving in, in many different ways. I love your rash decision, by the way. I think that's a wonderful decision to buy a house over a Viber. <laughs> Melbourne is obviously also quite isolated when you think about it from other metropolises. How do you view mm-hmm. its character by comparison? There's a saying that um, you need to take a certain distance from the world in order to understand it. Mm. And I, I've, I've always had the privilege of that because, like for example, my book's advertising was written in Sarajevo. And it was also, mm. it was a necessity for me because I needed to be away from the world of consumerism in order to understand it better. And I yeah. think you kind of get the same thing when you kind of leave one home from another. Every time I leave Melbourne, I realize that it still is the place for food. I still haven't found a place yeah. that can match, match the versatility of what you have on offer in Melbourne. I often think about Melbourne almost like a sponge, like maybe because it's so far that it goes all over the world and like takes all the best bits and like takes it back home with like an enormous amount of pride. And then it wants to do something even more amazing with it. That's kind mm-hmm. of how I feel about Melbourne. Um, I don't know. I think the distance, psychological distance, physical distance from the rest of the world has something, has done something to the city. Yeah, you definitely feel it. When I'm in Istanbul, I feel far from where I grew up, you know? Yeah, exactly. When I'm in Europe, I'm in, well, in Turkey, I'm in more in touch with my European friends. And it's weird because it's like we still have the same phone number and the same applications, <laughs> but for some reason we're in touch more readily when I'm over there. It's strange, even though it kind of could, almost could, shouldn't be that way because we kind of have, we're globally connected. Yeah, but you still feel the physical proximity I think when you're in a in a continent that's closer like Australia is just far from everything really yeah it is it is and yeah I think being here makes me realize that more and more definitely so what are some of the challenges of blending the introspective mode required for writing with the public facing persona needed for marketing a book I, th- I think that's a good way of putting it actually I think with writing writing is like this thing that demands solitude like it's a prerequisite. Mm. So it's like you can't yeah. have one without the other. So like you introspection. Can't socially right. <laughs> you can't. There's certain things you can, but to get to the depth of the work, you need that, mm. you know, complete removal from society. And in that space, you become more vulnerable. Um, so I think the challenge of, of kind of stepping out of that sometimes takes time. And maybe I've always been a very kind of socially geared individual and and I'm a huge conversationalist. So I think once I step out of that zone, I actually feel quite comfortable talking about anything really. So I kind of, yeah, I think maybe I'm lucky in that regard because not a lot of people are like that. You know, a lot of people are just very, you know, they find it difficult talking about their own work, especially in a public setting. I'm quite similar. Like Mm. by the time that it's on the website and I've designed the collection we've done the crafting of it mm-hmm. and then it's on the website. I'm completely emotionally detached by that point and I don't feel that sensitivity that I do when I'm actually in the process of making it. 
I don't know if it's yeah. the same for you. And by that point, I'm talking about it as though I've just cooked someone lunch and I'm just like, this is what I cooked. Yeah, no, um, I think it, yeah, until the until the critic in your head comes <laughs> in, yeah, and you're just uh, rolling with a bit of self doubt. But that's that's okay. I think you need that. You can't you can't have any kind of creativity without doubting it. You know. Yeah, and it's probably. I mean, as long as it doesn't go too far, I think a little bit of critique of your work is good for raising the standard, but not in a self a completely self deprecating way. Yeah, More in a, definitely. you know, what can I do better to improve my expression of creativity? This isn't a well-formed opinion. This is just my musings over my own work. But it's good to hear that you're also quite good at um, the separation. Yeah, I think you, I think you, you're speaking from a, from a, from experience, and that's kind of that's where we kind of land on truth, especially with things like mm. this. And I've I've also found like with like inspiration because we're living in this kind of society where you're constantly inundated with, with everybody's trying to inspire you in some way that like you mm. kind of almost have to try and separate it and try and find only the relevant bits. I think it's the same way as in like how you analyze yourself and how you critique your own work. You take the relevant, you know, instead of taking it all in and then just becoming self-deprecating. <laughs> yeah. In that like tortured, <laughs> that tortured way. I'm definitely not a tortured creative. That's for sure. I'm just like, move on. And I read, I don't know, this is a little bit cliche, but I'm going to say it anyway, but you know the book um, Big Magic? It's about creativity. It's by the author of Eat, Pray, Love. Mm -hmm. So she talks about creativity and she says that basically everyone is creative, no one is completely original. And I find that really um, liberating because it's like, oh, I can just do my thing and not worry about it. Like it's fine. Do you know what I mean? Like it doesn't have to be amazing all the time or, you know, people can no. hate it and that's fine. They're entitled to that opinion. It doesn't profess that creativity is elitist because it isn't. It isn't It isn't esoteric. It's something that we have naturally yeah. as human beings. So it's completely true. I try and tell people that when they ask me what my secret is. I'm like, there's no, I'm just, this is just one form of creativity. It's like when I cook, I would consider it just as creative as making Mm. jewellery it's just another like another form but to try and encourage people to be like no you're also as creative as me like I think you know any profession is creative actually we're just so conditioned to think from high school or even primary school okay you're in the arts you're creative you're a science you're not creative and then just people just you know go along their path telling themselves that they're not creative just like I told myself basically my whole life I wasn't good at maths and now I'm like I am good at maths (laughs) I haven't got there yet. Like, <laughs> like okay, not algebra and all the about. really complicated stuff, but like I can do enough to get by. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, you probably, you've also come to understand it, you know, through running a business. So you kind of have to have a yeah. kind of idea of mathematics, which is good. But yeah, I mean, problem solving is creative. Leading on from that, we can talk about your like practical experience of blending the corporate work of a brand strategist which is what you do as well, right? With your creative practice of writing, how do you find they overlap? No, they do. I mean, I, I've had this, to give you some context, for example, I when I left high school, I intended to, to study writing, but I got mm. scared of like going to the arts because everyone around me was, well, there was a specific moment that was probably too long to get into. But, um, and I decided to study marketing. And then while I was studying marketing, I started writing. So, you know, just after Mm. high school, I started writing poetry. So my years at university, I was almost like 
while I enjoyed studying marketing, I was just very dreamy. It was a lyrical period. It's the lyrical age. I started writing poetry. I started feeling too many feelings and trying to express that. So, so pretty much after I graduated, I went straight into studying creative writing because I almost felt like I missed my mark. So, um, mm. so I went from studying marketing to going straight into the arts to study creative writing and I absolutely loved it. But then I was like, what, 22, 23 and I had no job. And, and I, 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 I got a role in, in like a, kind of marketing consultancy and that's where I kind of oh my god are we twins because <laughs> I did the same thing but in Paris <laughs> amazing <laughs> but it's totally true and I, I went to and I and I get I became exposed to the world of brand expression of of branding of advertising and I completely fell in love with it because mm. I think it was a form of creativity that I wasn't aware that I'd be privy to in life and and I think I really got lucky because I came to a space where the guy who ran the business didn't really want to do the creative stuff. So I, I kind of almost like re-educated myself around around branding and advertising until I kind of started working for like top-tier agencies. So I've always had this balance between the corporate world and the creative world in a way, or personal or practical creativity. I think that's the best way to describe it. And I think even the book's advertising is this battle between the two. It's like, who's going to win? Is a copywriter going to win or is a literary writer going to win? And it's still ongoing, you know? Uh, I mean, I still, I still freelance. I mean, I, I no longer work full time like I used to. It's been about five years or so. But now I just freelance and I've been kind of focusing on this idea of doing a three-day working week. So um, I've kind of understood that I'll, I won't be making the same money again, but I'll have I'll have better time management in order to write. So mm. now anytime I take up any particular role, it's like, okay, I can give you three days, so I can have two days to write during the week. That's probably just also maturity, isn't it, as we get older? We're like, I can't Yeah, do it, it is. Yeah, exactly. It's like yeah. me. I'm like, maybe two outings a week with friends. I can't do more than that. Otherwise, I'm too tired. <laughs> it's sort of similar. <laughs> I, had, I had this... Um, I had like a book launch at readings in Carlton and there was a guy that came. He was um, uh, the boyfriend of a friend of mine. And he said the most amazing thing. We we're going to go out for dinner and drinks afterwards. And he just said, um, and it's thank you very much, but I've, I've had my feel of social engagement this evening. I need to retire into my own space. And I just love that. I was like, that's, that's yeah. right. I, I love that. <laughs> I, I completely get it. We just burn ourselves with too much social activity and too much work. I'm pointing yeah. the finger at myself. Yeah, that's so interesting because I did exactly the same thing. I studied brand management in Paris and then I worked for Publicis France and then I started my jewellery brand, so it's interesting. So you know you know the struggles I'm talking about. I do, but it's <laughs> it's assisted me a lot in my career. You of know, course, yeah. Those studies and that, you know, the other side of the equation is the branding. Mm. So what is your relationship, your emotional relationship to the work you do in the corporate world? I think in, in the book's advertising, I don't necessarily derail the industry and mm. uh, and make it seem like it's a horrible place. And I think that way of thinking has lapsed, if that makes sense. Um, if you think if you think historically of, of books that have uh, that take place in the advertising world, they're vile um, ad executives who are cocaine binging, lots of sex workers and hookers. 
And it's always like that. It's very, I guess it has a misogynistic feel. I didn't yeah. grow up in a world of advertising like that. Most of the people that I spent my time with are kind of like nerds who are <laughs> very creative. And yes, there's yeah. people who are definitely um, still embody that spirit of, you know, too much drinking and partying and all this sort of stuff. But I think, I think it's mm. evolved and I, and I, we've kind of presented the world of ads through mad men in a way, if you think of it. And I, and I kind of wanted to narrow my focus. I wanted to narrow my focus on, on more the existential dread that you feel as a creative individual in that space. Because I think if you work in advertising, you've always had these high hopes of artistry of, of literature especially if you come from a creative background. So if you kind of step mm. into copywriting, production, art direction, creative direction, most of those people have had some dreams of, of a non-commercial personal creativity, if that makes sense. So I, I, I kind of intimately understand it because I'm the same, you know. I, I just took the plunge. I took the risk of going, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out and I'm going to do my own thing. I, in the book, I addressed what it's like being a person who kind of works in the engine of capitalism per se, somebody who makes mm. ads and makes things more desirable. But now I, I'm becoming more frustrated around all of these aspects because I'm, I'm realizing that every aspect of our lives has kind of intruded upon, if that makes sense. I feel like we're subconsciously and consciously almost geared to, to buy something <laughs> because everybody's selling something, you know? You know, if it's not... A product, it's a service. If it's if it's not a service, it's an argument, it's an opinion, it's a belief system, it's a religion, it's a TV show. You gotta watch this, you know. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's it's maybe it's like you know it's aspects of self discovery. But I, I I don't know. It's sometimes I feel like there's this moment where we're kind of living in endless business transactions, and that's something that's making me think harder and more around systematic capitalism, if that makes sense. I think that's a reflection of where I'm going next as a writer because I, the sarcasm that I kind of tried to express in advertising worked for that book, but the next book I think is a lot more, it's perhaps darker. I look forward to reading it. <laughs> Thank as you. someone who sells a product too, like it's quite a, you know, a conundrum for myself as well. Mm, but it's, it's about trying to find maybe a more ethical way of doing it, you know, and I think it comes from, I mean, you know yourself, you know, there's this saying, mm. you know, you, you have to reach a purpose with a brand. And once you reach that purpose, it, it becomes easier to understand and people are drawn to it for different reasons, maybe because the value systems are greater, you know? Yeah. Yeah, obviously, like, the the message of what you do is greater than, well, ideally, things that you impart to the world are greater than just the product itself, you would hope. Yeah. Have you found the need to sort of temper your feelings about the corporate world in your writing to either like better transmit your meaning or to protect yourself from the real world repercussions? I think that has to do with integrity because you don't want to be some kind of, as a writer, you don't want to be some kind of proxy for something. I think at times maybe maybe I was a bit worried about certain things when I was writing this advertising. There's like 50 stories in there and, and many of them are set in the world of advertising. And I think I maybe I did temper myself in, in some development of those stories early on, but I had to break through that because mm. I was I was forming my own world and my own viewpoint and I didn't have to cater to anyone. So 
I, I try not to tamper my feelings, if that makes sense. Like it's it's really about to find the writing that matters. You you can't be you don't want to feel like you're accountable to to anyone really, you know, other than a reader, you know? Yeah, it's an, it's another interesting balance you have to strike in your work, isn't it? Yeah, it is, definitely. And what about the importance of humour in writing and how it differs from how you deliver humour, for example, in speech? I, I think it has to be personified. So I think often mm. people can be funny or they are funny, but I think it matters on the situation as well. So I think, but yes, there is there is a difference in terms of how you deliver humour. I think personally when I'm in a space and the way I tell a story, I'm probably a lot more dramatic. There's a lot of like, I'm moving my hands a lot and, um, mm. and you know, your intonations of your voice. Uh, sometimes that's a bit hard to express in, in writing. Um, but I think my humour comes more from, from absurdism in a way um, because in, in, in the, in the way I structured advertising, I, I try and reach the most absurd conclusion in any narrative. So as I write, it's almost like this, like, it's ascending. And I think the humor comes out like that. So it's like, it's characterized through personalities and through scenarios. There isn't a, a lot of direct humor delivered through, through a character. I think it kind of works how the situation is formed. Compounding irony or something. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I think of, of a character called Mike in this book called The Fort, in, in the story The Fort. I think it's the third story in advertising with, uh, where there's a character called David who's building a fort in the office. So he's trying to hide himself. And this guy, Mike, always comes up and he's like, hey, how are you doing? You know, and he's not really paying attention to the fort, but he's just asking silly questions like, you know, did you know that boredom is, you know, blah, blah, blah. So it's kind of like that expresses humor without him trying to make a literal joke. Yeah, it's interesting because so many different forms of humour as well, like how we have different senses of humour in different languages as well. Yeah, it is, definitely. Are you funnier in English or...? <laughs> <laughs> or, or in Bosnian? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I, I I think I'm funnier in English. I don't know. I Am I funny in Bosnian? I <laughs> I guess like, I am. I'm so serious in Bosnian. <laughs> <laughs> I always wonder that because when I'm cracking jokes in Turkish, my Turkish friends laugh, but I'm like, I think they're just laughing because they sound ridiculous. But does that matter? It's still funny. <laughs> it's still funny. That's right. Yes, you're yeah. still delivering a sense of humor. But, but I, I think I do think that we we become different personalities in depends who we're with. Okay, so Reese, I've, I've, we've had this running joke in my household with my girlfriend. Um, there's a guy that we met and he talked about us to his girlfriend. And mm-hmm. uh, then we met his girlfriend and she came up there and said, Oh my God, I don't talked about you. It's really, it was really, it was really cool. And he said, um, you know, Stanislava is a very serious artist who's very serious about her art. And then uh, Ennis is just this funny guy. <laughs> so that's how he <laughs> described me. And I'm well, like, there you well, go. But I'm like, but I'm a serious too. <laughs> But to him, I was just funny. The conclusion is you're very funny. <laughs> <laughs> From so what good. I hear in the, in, in the grapevine of meeting people. Yeah, the, all the echoes, as they say in yeah. French. The echoes are that I'm very funny. <laughs> That's great. So back to like identity and everything, how do you mm-hmm. see identity as being co-opted by branding efforts to sell a person or product? It's a terrible thing. And, <laughs> <laughs> and what have... 
what ways have you experienced this yourself and do you try to resist this? So if we think about this from the perspective of, of okay, let's use the Pepsi ad, Kendall Jenner. You know, that, that mm-hmm. appropriated social justice movements to sell a product. And it did a really yeah. bad job. <laughs> and um, yes. and their, excuse, their excuse was, you know, we didn't have an aid. We didn't choose it. We did it internally or something like that. Like, well, the advertising agencies were complaining about it. They said they didn't have an agency attached to it. That's why they fucked it up. You have to understand the trend of popular opinion. And advertising, per se, is an industry that has to understand the times of now. And it almost mm-hmm. kind of has to use the times of now to align itself to the production of goods in a way. So a lot of the times, maybe because of rush, it gets misaligned. So, and I think that Pepsi ad is a really good example because it demonstrates how corporatism has failed in understanding culture. And advertising corporates could uh, like argue that if it got your attention, it worked, even if it got your attention yeah. in a bad way. Exactly, because they, they think of mental availability and yeah, you know, you, you could argue that it has garnered a lot of attention, but it's also garnered a lot of attention for being one of the worst ads in the world. Does it make it a bad ad? Has it sold more Pepsi in the end? We don't know, but it maybe it did. Yeah. I wonder if Pepsi even need ads to sell more Pepsi or if it's just to keep themselves relevant. Yeah, I guess that's the thing. It's about relevance. But I, I you know, I, I read recently that uh, Dries, uh, Dries Van Norton, the designer, he has no marketing yeah. budget. He does no advertising. It's done through fashion shows and retailers. But I think that's amazing. I was like, wow, so they just do a lookbook and that's it. That's the only thing they spend money on when it comes to marketing. Well, I mean, that's pretty avant-garde because it's pretty much unheard of. I mean, they could be lying. If they lied about it, that's just more marketing. <laughs> <laughs> and good marketing because it piqued my interest. Yeah. And I'm like, this is cool. I'm going to buy this brand that doesn't do any marketing. <laughs> right? It's just worked because look at us now talking about it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so what do you see as the relationship between photography and literature? Because you're in, you're quite into photography, aren't you? Yes, yes, I am. I, I think I started doing photography myself more to kind of document the process and, and document aspects for writing. So it wasn't any purpose or it wasn't any interest in becoming a photographer per se, I actually just wanted to have a better visual eye, but I also wanted to aid my writing. And then I think through that journey in 2020, I actually released a book independently called New Metonyms, uh, which is a book about my homeland, Bosnia-Herzegovina. I did it with a photographer called Shantanu Staric, who's uh, from Australia, but based out of Dublin. He's been living in Europe for a very long time. So the pairing of photography with, with literature has always been a huge interest of mine. So I kind of, I, I did this book that kind of weaves through the metonymy of Bosnia-Herzegovina or new metonymy through photography. So it's basically short stories, poetry, and photography that kind of takes you on a journey because I wanted to give people a different feeling of Bosnia. And when I speak of metonyms, I speak of uh, metonyms of place. So a metonym, for example, of the USA is the White House. You know, Paris is the Eiffel Tower. India is the Taj Mahal and things like that. So you think of big cultural architectural monuments that define the country. Um, the reason why I did this book, New Metonyms, was because every time I spoke to people about Bosnia or Sarajevo, they're like, oh, is it safe there? Like even though 30 years have passed since the war, there's still this remnant of war. So I went wow. 
directly into trying to challenge that preconceived notion and try to look at Bosnia and try and find new metonyms. That was the idea. So I went and traveled through the country extensively and tried to identify things that I thought, this is a new metonym and has no attachment to any to any mm-hmm. idea of war. Or not an idea, but uh, impact of war. So yeah, photography means a lot to me. And, and at the moment, I'm working on a new novel that's set in the village that I'm from. Um, mm-hmm. So I've been spending, I just spent three weeks there by myself, a couple of, maybe a month and a half ago. Uh, and my daily practice was writing and then going for a walk afterwards with my camera. I'm, I'm almost like documented the process of or the journey that I'm taking to write this book. So I've got a, a massive, yeah, I've got a massive file of photos from that. So has working with phot- photography and advertising altered the way that you read photographs? Yeah, in a way, in a way, it has. I assume because I kind of depends what photography as well. I think. You know, there's certain things that I understand and that I read. And maybe there's a conflict. I, I, I Often I can get into, a, not an argument, but a, a, or, or an argumentative state of how I view things. And maybe I do view a lot of things through the lens of, 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 of my understanding of advertising. Like I was saying earlier, I think we are living in this kind of cycle of business transactions. And sometimes I see the business transaction. Even on Instagram, you know, like I can feel sometimes, yeah. you know, they try to sell me everything. They, they are, whoever they is, they're doing it. <laughs> That's right. They're doing it. Right. You wrote in a recent interview that on three days a week, it's not possible to afford, afford Magiella, which gives the sense mm. that even if designer clothing is not attainable, you have an eye for fashion. So... I, now I'm just curious and I need to know what's your favourite riding outfit. Yes, Magella is very expensive. <laughs> <laughs> um, I adopted this method of, 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 of dressing up for riding. And I don't mean like I dress up in a suit and a bow tie. <laughs> you know, it's not like I that, like that I though. And... If you do, like go off. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I, do, I do make an effort before I get to the desk. I, I need to feel comfortable. And I think if I'm feeling comfortable with what I'm wearing, it gives me more confidence to to draw myself out through the vulnerabilities that I'm trying to get to. But yes, I, I think I I think I've always had ever since I was a kid. Maybe this comes from my mom. I've always been obsessed with shoes, and I recently noticed that maybe that has come from that has been an influence from my mother, who always had used to buy a lot of shoes. You know, my mom was always like bargain hunting, but she always had a lot of shoes. And I've always had a lot of shoes. Like, even when I was packing for here, I was like, man, I've got like, why do I have like 30 pairs of shoes? Dude, oh my God, me too. <laughs> no, it's a running joke in my family. They're like, when you move, you'll need a shipping container for your shoes. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes I put on shirts or, you know, whatever I'm wearing, long sleeves. I, I couldn't just get out of bed and just, and just write. Like, yeah, I can, yeah. but I just feel – I don't I just don't feel comfortable. So I like the preparation to get into it. And I think clothing, mm. it liberates me in a way. Yeah. And they work for me. Because I found that during lockdown, like in the beginning, I was like, amazing. I can just wear whatever I want. And then after a few weeks, I was like, this is bad. I don't have any ritual structure. And then I just found yeah. it bleeding into the whole working around the clock – 
wearing the same depressed outfit and then I was like, no, this is <laughs> this has got to stop and I think it would be the same. Yeah, exactly. In 2019, I, I won this award through the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne to write my first book, which became advertising, and I got $15,000 through the fellowship. So I used that money Congrats. to come back to Sarajevo and mm-hmm. I got this apartment and I lived there for like a year and I used the money to pay the rent and that's where I wrote the book. But it's really funny when I went through, I went through the photographs of like, you know, going through that time. I was like, oh, that was really cool. I loved my desk. And then there was just like all these photos of me taking a photo of myself in the mirror with all my outfits. That's <laughs> like, awesome. This is so funny. And I only sent it to my girlfriend, obviously, because I was like, am I going to make this public? <laughs> I was going to say, but you it really, can it really completely send us up. a few <laughs> for our newsletter about this episode. <laughs> but it really cracked me up because I was like, oh, my God, this is hilarious because I talk about this, but I forgot that I have a visual record of it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Even in the book, I'm going back to that book again, Big Magic, she talks about when she wrote her book, sometimes she would just put lipstick on. It makes you feel good. Yeah. And then she'd be like, I'm here in my home with hot red lipstick on writing my book. <laughs> I have to break up my day too as well. Otherwise, if I'm just doing one thing for the whole day, I feel like I'm going crazy. I don't know if that's the same for you with writing. If you have to have like intervals for walking and lunch and. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I write in short bursts. I, I um, you know, there's writers that can sit down and just work eight hours. I, I can't do that. I work in heated concentration. So I was like, I sit down. And I write like 20 or 30 minutes and I get up and, and I recently discovered this tactic through another writer, which I found incredibly valuable. Um, you write in 20 minutes sprints. Mm. So you write for 20 minutes, but you put an alarm on and then you come out of it for, for five minutes. You just kind of shake or walk out and then you come back to it. And that has been incredible. That's, that's a tactic that I used when I was in the village because I was there by myself. So just and then I would increase. I would increase it for twenty to thirty minutes, um, and that worked incredibly well. I really liked that. I mean, it suits me because I'm very erratic. You know, I, you know, I need to move. And- well, I think it actually suits most brains, according to science, because I think they say most brains can't concentrate much longer than that in a in one sitting. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a really good point. Probably for productivity, it's good. Like the way that we structure our working days is probably not the most productive, is it? <laughs> Nine to five? No, no, it, it isn't. I mean, that's why it's changing in so many places around the world. And, and I think that's the reason why everybody's kind of trying to find a different way of living, to make it more valuable. You know, It doesn't feel valuable when you just like work from nine till eight sometimes and then you just, you can't even be fucked cooking, you know? Yeah, I know. That's bad. <laughs> well, on that note, um, <laughs> can you let everyone know your Instagram handle so they can find you on the big gram? It's just at, and then my name, at N-S-C-H, which is E-N-N-I-S-C-E-H-I-C. Well, lovely to put a, a face to your name. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. This podcast was produced by Zoltan Fetcho and the Cleopatra's Bling team with original music by Cameron Alva. If you liked the show, share it with a friend and leave us a few stars on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you're signed up to the newsletter on cleopatrasbling.com to keep up with the newest updates on all things Cleopatra's Bling. Next time on the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. 
I've become probably more of the classic like chef just throw something in a pan probably not that tidy at home get it done get it in you go to sleep and then at work yeah take a lot more pride <laughs> with what I'm doing yeah until next time stay curious